0: Welcome to another Books and Culture podcast with Books and Culture's editor, John Wilson. I'm Stan Guthrie, and today, John, will be looking at a new book by George Marsden, The Twilight of the American Enlightenment. It looks fascinating. Yes, Dan. This book is scheduled for publication in February of 2014. So this is our first coming attraction for, <laughs> for 2014. One of the things about working in the world of books is that on the one hand, you are looking at books that have officially been published, and at the same time, you're looking at books which are coming sometime down the road. And even though I've been doing this for the better part of my adult life, I still feel a pleasure as if I'm getting in on something, (laughs) 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 that there's something not illicit (laughs) but something that doesn't fit in the normal course of things by seeing books ahead of time. And of course, a new book by George Marsden is always Mm -hmm. an event. So we will be reviewing this in Books and Culture. The review probably won't appear for uh, several months at least, but I thought it would be good for us to put out the word to our listeners so they can make a note that, they want to get that book when it comes out. Certainly. What's your take on the book so far? Oh, I enjoyed it very much. I think that the argument of it is neatly summarized in a passage fairly near the end. He's been talking about Luce and Niebuhr. The subtitle is The 50s and the Crisis of Liberal Belief. And he says, what neither Luce nor Niebuhr could see was how near they were to the end of an era. The United States had been shaped by an alliance between Enlightenment rationality and Protestant religion. Since the days of the early republic, there had always been room for an informal religious establishment to play an occasionally significant supplemental role, even as most of the business, politics, learning, literature, and arts of the nation were conducted on essentially secular grounds. That arrangement still seemed to be flourishing throughout the 1950s, especially in the midst of such widespread religious resurgence. Yet two decades later, after the cultural upheaval of the late 60s, the idea of a mainline Protestant establishment was hardly more than a memory. Then he's going to go on to talk about the way in which the rise of the religious right could be seen as a response to the failure of this establishment there was a kind of you might say a vacuum of power in trying to establish a kind of national guiding spirit and that the religious right sought to step in and do that and of course the results were not what they hoped but one could take issue with some elements of that passage and the longer argument that it sketches You could say, for instance, that it makes too sharp a distinction. There's an implication that outside the established Protestant mainline that that was allied with other dominant forces in the culture, outside that, that there was a rejection of Enlightenment rationality. And certainly, I'm not suggesting that George would go that far. He would certainly admit that the story was more complicated It might be a question of degree. That is, I might see more of a role of Enlightenment rationality in the whole history of evangelicalism while acknowledging that there were certainly also counter-tendencies within evangelicalism and allied movements that rejected it. Whereas he might put it the other way around. He might say, well, yes, there were some cases in which you can see the influence of Enlightenment rationality and these movements that were outside the main line, the established church, insofar as America ever had such, But that wasn't the main story. All of which is to say whether or not one agrees in every respect with the big narrative that underlies this, the most valuable aspect of the book is the way it takes you back into a period that is certainly not unfamiliar for people who are interested in American intellectual history. And yet, having someone, a superb historian like George Marsden, take us back for another encounter, let's say, Mm -hmm. is very valuable. And what does he see as the so-what factor? I mean, where do we go from here after reading his analysis? The so-what factor is in some ways similar to Several of his earlier influential works, like The Outrageous Idea of Christian Scholarship, the last chapter toward a more inclusive pluralism. And he's Mm. talking about the tension between a certain secular notion of pluralism that either consciously or more often unconsciously excludes religious belief, and on the other hand, the possibility for people like us who hold strong religious convictions to at the same time join with others who don't share those convictions mm-hmm. for the cause of a more inclusive pluralism that's the conclusion that all this leads to and i heartily share his hopes for that while recognizing as he does that it it's not something easily achievable mm-hmm. but again i want to emphasize how a lot of the fun and a lot of the interest in reading it mm-hmm. is simply being taken back for instance he takes us back to a conference where various public intellectuals were mostly wringing their hands about the terrible state of so-called mass culture in the 50s. And that alone is a fascinating topic. We never hear people speak in those terms nowadays. Yeah. But there was this enormous literature in mm. the 1950s, you know, mass man and, and mass culture and mass cult, and many, many figures who in, in some ways were quite diverse intellectual figures were united by being appalled by the specter of this culture particularly for instance in television sure. you know and there's a very funny inadvertently funny bit where he's c- quoting james baldwin the point being the reason i mentioned baldwin is you might say oh well that was conservative people you know worried about comic books and all that sort of thing yeah. there were those but then there were also many others like baldwin for instance and in his discussion of that event George highlights the uh, perspective that was offered by the great sociologist at the University of Chicago, Edward Shills, who argued for a more nuanced view and actually had the effrontery to suggest that there might be some good things <laughs> about, this, <laughs> yeah. about this mass culture. So that, for instance, when I was growing up in the very era that he describes and my family and I used to sit down and watch Perry Mason and Bonanza and so on, that we weren't just under the spell of mindless pap you know and, they, and and we weren't we weren't simply exemplifying the destruction of american civilization at least in my case it didn't there was no contradiction between watching perry mason and bonanza and being interested in other things it didn't kill my interest uh-huh. in the life of the mind and the very distinction that is implied in a lot of these critiques i think is very suspect, you know, so it's, it's very interesting to be taken back on this tour of these concerns and then hold them in your mind and say, how do we think about the term people tend to use now, which, you know, I don't like either, but they tend to use terms like popular culture. Mm -hmm. And we certainly see lots of hand wringing about the excesses, the degradation the commercialization that we see in so-called popular culture, to what extent are those justified? To what extent are they not? Can we learn anything from looking back in this period that he's covering and seeing what people were worrying about then and how things played out?